WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. Hi, I'm Bob Pavlovich. On today's show, we hear about a New Orleans-based intentional living community for recovering veterans. And we'll learn about a Tulane University grad student's efforts to get the family home of Aretha Castle Haley on the National Register for Historic Places. But first, last month the U.S. Supreme Court balked at confronting the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and its efforts to delay the redrawing of Louisiana's congressional maps ahead of next year's elections. Now, many are wondering if Governor Edwards will do anything to address this during the remainder of his term. Stephanie Grace, columnist and editorial director for the Times-Picayune, The Advocate, joins us now for more on this. Thanks for being here, Steph. Thanks for having me. Can you start by bringing us up to speed on the redistricting case? What's what's the latest? Well, the latest is it is now back in the state's hands, um, courtesy of the the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is actually a very conservative court in general, but it's following the guidance of the Supreme Court, also very conservative. But they've made a num- they've made um, kind of an interesting voting rights decision in Alabama that. Um, applies to Louisiana, basically. Mm-hmm. And that is that, um, you know, in both states, the existing maps were deemed to not comply with the Voting Rights Act in terms of um, giving Black residents of these states enough of an opportunity to elect someone of their preference. And that basically translates into how many congressional districts are majority Black, how many are majority White. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of the the political overlay is because voting is so polarized, it also translates into how many are Republican, how many are Democrat. So the latest is that it's now back in the state's hands. um, A judge is basically given a deadline of January 15th for the state to submit a new map that complies with the ruling, which basically would create an additional majority Black district in Louisiana on top of the one we have. So the the balance would go from 6-1 to 5-2. And that, uh, according to this ruling, has to happen by January 15th. So the complicating factor is our new governor takes office a week before that. Mm-hmm. And because of the way um, restrictions on, on on how they can call these uh, special sessions and pass laws, there's no way for Jeff Landry to call a session at what, as, even as soon as he's elected and meet that deadline. So the question now is, are they going to request a and a little bit of an extension so that the new governor and the new legislature can come in and do it right away? That's kind of the widespread expectation that they will. And the judge's ruling did indicate that that was a possibility. That's what we're waiting on right now. Governor Edwards can call the special session, but what's the political calculus there? What are the considerations and benefits, if any, for his party? Yeah. So it's interesting. He can do it. He can call the existing outgoing legislature into session. Now that's complicated for a couple of reasons. One is the holidays and it's the end of the term and, you know, these people don't want to come back. And, you know, for Governor Edwards, there really isn't a major benefit for the party. Um, You know, it really does seem unless the Supreme Court eventually does something really unexpected and reverses where it seems to be on these cases Louisiana will have a new balance of power in its congressional delegation, five majority white, probably Republican, two majority black, probably Democrat seats. So, you know, Governor Edwards is a Democrat. That's, you know, that's fine with him. That's what he supported all along. Mm -hmm. You know, the calculations going forward are kind of which particular politicians 
might be best positioned to win those seats. And that's something that he at this stage doesn't really need to get into as he's on his way out the door. Now, he has said that he if the if the Fifth Circuit appeals court does not give the state an extension, that he will go ahead and call a session, you know, to comply with the deadline. But right now, really, the question is what Jeff Landry and Jeff Landry is in an interesting situation because he's not only incoming governor, but he is outgoing attorney general. And as attorney general, like he's the one handling the case. Before we go, Steph, general elections are this weekend. Are you watching anything? Is there room for upset? Uh, You know, very low temperature. Obviously, the governor's race is decided. Uh, The big races still to be decided are attorney general, secretary of state and treasurer, in both cases, there's really kind of an overwhelming favorite um, who is a Republican, just, you know, based on, if nothing else, the polarized voting in the state. Mm-hmm. So that's where watching the hottest race is actually in Lafayette for mayor, where there's a the incumbent Josh Guillory has a strong challenge from um, the daughter of former governor Kathleen Blanco. So that's probably where the drama will be. <laughs> Stephanie Grace, columnist and editorial director for the Times-Picayune, The Advocate, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Last Saturday was Veterans Day, a time to honor service members throughout the country, about 15,000 of whom live in New Orleans. As many of us know, it's not always easy for veterans to reintegrate into their communities after returning from a tour of duty. Thankfully, there are organizations aimed at helping people with these transitions. Recently, Bastion Community of Resilience, a New Orleans-based intentional living community for recovering veterans, helped launch the New Orleans Veterans Coalition, an organization that brings former service members together for acts of service. Jackson Smith's executive director of Bastion, he joins us now for more. Jackson, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Can you start by telling us a bit about your experience? How did you decide to go into the Marine Corps after graduating from Tulane? Well, I had made that decision well before I came to Tulane. I'm, I'm the son of a Vietnam veteran Marine. Uh, my dad dropped out of college to volunteer for the Marine Corps. And that made a big impression on me growing up. I was a pretty kind of shiftless, directionless kid. But 9-11 happened my junior year of high school. And that was just sort of a 90 degree turn for me. I I was dead set by probably noon that day uh, that I was going to join the Marine Corps at the earliest available opportunity. What did you get out of those eight years? Oh, gosh. I mean, joining the Marine Corps uh, is the best decision that I ever made other than uh, marrying my wife and deciding to become a dad. It gave me who I am today. I think having the ability for the rest of my life to be able to say with certainty that I have seen the best that people are capable of myself, that I, that I saw greatness, true heroic greatness performed by the most ordinary people just because that's what it was called upon them to do. Mm-hmm. And now you work for the nation's first intentional community for recovering veterans. Can you tell us a bit about the, the history of Bastion, how it was founded and so forth? So where we sit today in this 58-home community was right at ground zero of Katrina's devastation. And my predecessor, our founder, Dylan Tett, uh, had returned from the Army. He was in the initial invasion of Iraq, and he came to New Orleans to start participating in post-Katrina rebuilding. And as he was doing that, he witnessed two things. The first was that his friends were starting to die. He was starting to lose friends and not overseas. 
He was losing friends after they had come back home. Mm-hmm. That problem of, of veteran suicide and, and the post-combat issues that we know so well now, we didn't understand them as well back then. And so Dylan was looking at that with a lot of alarm. And at the same time, he was looking around him here in New Orleans, and he saw the way that people who had lost everything were still finding ways to give something to their neighbors. And he saw the way these people who had been through such loss and devastation were picking each other back up and nourishing and sustaining each other on the path forward together. And he said, something special is happening here. And I think that there is a way to, to connect these two dots. And that's the spark around which Bastion was born. I don't think it could have been founded anywhere else. Who is Bastion intended to serve? Our core constituency is um, what we refer to as tough cases people who are dealing with multiple injuries, who are dealing with a combination of chronic and acute injuries, people who may have had additional conditions that affected them either pre or post service, people for whom they are not getting VA care. Really, we cast a pretty wide net in in this respect. What are some of the services you offer? So the the one that has become our, our premier programmatic effort is what we call the Headway Program. The Headway program is, is our way of taking that neighbor-to-neighbor type care and, and applying it in a very focused fashion towards the traumatic brain injury population. The traumatic brain injury, or TBI, is the signature wound of the war on terror. We probably have over 2,000 TBI-affected veterans in New Orleans. Hmm. The, the low estimate is 14 to 1,500. I'm pretty confident pegging it at closer to 2,500. Can you share any success stories? Oh, absolutely. I'll share, I'll share one that we were talking about this morning. One of our first and longest serving participants, before he came to Bastion to join the Headway program, he had suffered a, a traumatic brain injury while still in uniform. He was in a, a bad, bad car accident, spent nine months in a coma. When he came out of that coma, his injuries left him with pretty permanent and significant disabilities, particularly in terms of motor control. Before his injury, he had been a brilliant, brilliant artist. And when he came out of that coma, he saw the state of his motor skills and took it as a given that all of that world of artistic expression that had meant so much to him was gone. And then he sat on his parents' couch for 15 years. The outside world almost totally cut off to him. He came to the Headway program and started working with our occupational therapist and and learned some not only basic techniques to account for his, his motor skill issues, mm-hmm. but also put himself in an environment where he was being encouraged constantly on a daily basis by people with injuries like him, people who could show him the progress that they had made by trusting the process and working hard. And with a little bit of work, it was like a treasure chest being unlocked. I can show you paintings, drawings, laser engravings, that this veteran has made, all of that talent was still in there Mm -hmm. waiting to be unlocked. We're speaking with Jackson Smith, Executive Director of Bastion Community of Resilience, about the organization's intentional living community for veterans and the services that they offer. Jackson, recently the New Orleans Veterans Council was formed to bring veterans together for volunteer service. Tell us a bit about this organization and, and why you decided that a coalition was needed. When I came into this job, we came to realize there is a bigger need in this city and a more complex need across our veteran population. And the only way to serve that need 
in as comprehensive and complex a fashion is for us to all get really, really good at collaborating. We have 58 homes in our community. There's 15,000 veterans in New Orleans. I can't house every one of them. But if I get a veteran who comes to me and needs help, I'm not going to tell him or her, hey, I got nothing for you. We're full. So if somebody comes to Bastion and they need help and it's something that we don't do or it's something that we don't have the capacity for, we are not going to turn that individual away until we have made the positive handoff with one of our partners, one of our collaborators who can service some aspect of that veteran's the Veterans Coalition reminds me of something that, that I, I heard about recently called Battlefields to Ballfields, uh, yep. an organization that trains veterans to be referees and umpires in middle and high school sporting events. Why do you think that's important? I can answer that question on the basis of my own experience. With the exception of our surviving Vietnam veterans, some of whom were drafted, the entirety of our veteran population are people who raise their right hand, many in a time of war and volunteered to serve their country when they did not have to. That tells me that across that population, among all the varying reasons to join the military, there is a shared common drive to serve, to be part of something larger than oneself. And when you leave the military, that's gone. You gotta start a new life for yourself. And that life might be in something that gives you that kind of purpose again. If you end up working in a job that's, you know, a job you got to pay the bills, If you're like me, you're coming home at the end of the day thinking, what am I here for? In what ways am I making my society and my community better or stronger or safer? You've got a lot of veterans who they can make their mortgage. They've got a decent job. They've got health care. Their kids go to school. But they feel that void in them still. I long to serve and I long to give back. That's the best way that I can answer that question. Jackson Smith, Executive Director of Bastion Community of Resilience. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you so much, Robert. This was such a pleasure. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. There's something about the power of place, the ability to be in a location in the surroundings where something important took place. Despite increased awareness, we continue to lose buildings and places important to people of color through urban renewal, redevelopment, and just plain old neglect. The C.C. Antoine House struggled for decades and was lost to an arson fire in Shreveport. The Harriet Tubman House in Boston sold to a condo developer, and the list goes on. A simple shotgun double in the 900 block of North Tonti Street in New Orleans looks like many others throughout the city, but what went on at this house in the 1950s and 60s shaped the face of the civil rights movement, not only in New Orleans, but across the nation. And now it's on the National Register of Historic Places, thanks to the efforts of a Tulane University graduate student in historic preservation. Robin Smith joins us to talk about her work in getting the family home of Aretha Castle Haley on the register. Robin, thank you for speaking with us today. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Can you start by telling us who is Aretha Castle Haley? Well, Aretha Castle Haley is a, a well-known, I think in New Orleans, well-known civil rights activist, uh, lifelong. She was um, one of the founding members of uh, CORE New Orleans, which was the Congress of Racial Equality uh, chapter here in New Orleans in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. and 
organized many uh, civil actions to protest segregation in the city and, and you know, spent her life really working for civil rights, as did other, uh, other members of her family. So, What was your impetus, your motivation to get the family home on the National Register of Historic Places? Well, it, it all started as a as a project for school, uh, doing a draft uh, National Register nomination. And this property had been um, brought forward as one of the, the possibilities that you could work on. And I raised my hand partially because I came to Tulane really uh, wanting to focus on kind of broadening our understanding of history and bringing forward stories that are not part of the typical narrative. I didn't know much um, when I raised my hand. Uh, and when I started doing research, I was just overwhelmed by by the story. I mean, it's very, very compelling, the the bravery and commitment of these young people. Made, they just made it an, an immense personal sacrifice. And mm-hmm. they made the, the city and the state and, and the nation a better place. And so uh, once I started really researching and learning about the story there was no way to let it go so <laughs> so i continued on after the after the end of the semester working um with the current owner of the property who was very committed to having it recognized and mm-hmm. and and went through the entire process in your research what did you learn about what went on at that home well, I learned that um, the Haley family were, uh, you know, a, a working class family in New Orleans. Virgie was a waitress, a barmaid at Dookie Chase's restaurant, and Johnny was a longshoreman. And they had three children, Aretha, Doris Jean, and John Castle Jr. And um, their daughters, Doris Jean and Aretha, became very involved in the civil rights movement at a very young age. I think 16 and 18, they were out on the front lines protesting uh, segregated businesses on Dryad Street in New Orleans, uh, where they were permitted to shop but weren't permitted to work. Um, They went on to do lunch counter sit-ins and uh, it just goes on and on. But the mm-hmm. home itself w- became one of the de facto kind of, um, I don't want to say clubhouse, that's the wrong word. Mm-hmm. Meeting um, place. It, it was a meeting place. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. a meeting house. It was a gathering place. It was a safe house. It was very central. And there are a number of quotes that got more into the research of um, people who were involved in the movement that um, referred to it as Freedom House and, you know, basically just said that anything, if you needed to know something, if you if you needed food, if there was, if you wanted to know what was going on, if there was a meeting, if there was anything, it was happening there. This little double shotgun house in in the Treme. You, you had mentioned and, and I had read about Aretha's mother's involvement. I mean, her working for Dookie and Leah. Um, what did her mom bring to the home? I think really what you have to keep in mind is that Virgie and Johnny were working. You know, Johnny was a longshoreman. He worked nights. He would come home to this house full of young activists. Sometimes they would be sleeping in his bed, you know, Mm -hmm. and he would just make his way through and past and, you know, find his own spot. Um, Mother, by all reports, Virgie, you know, the smell of red beans and rice is cited in numerous sources. 
cooking. Mm -hmm. So they provided, um, they just, they provided shelter and they allowed all uh, and welcomed all of these young activists into their home, made space for them, um, helped with printing flyers and just, you know, general kind of um, caretaking, I would say. We're speaking with Robin Smith, graduate student at Tulane in Historic Preservation, who has spearheaded a National Register of Historic Places designation for the family home of Aretha Castle Haley here in New Orleans. What was the process to achieve this designation? There are certain criteria that the National Register have for uh, properties that should be recognized. Uh, So it involves essentially research. You have to determine the category for the designation. You have to do the research and write the argument to justify the designation. You work with the um, State Office for Historic Preservation to kind of go through various drafts. They were incredibly helpful for me. It involves uh, mapping and photos. Um, I think the end document was about 50 pages Mm -hmm. um, through several drafts. uh, And that goes off. And once the application is accepted, then you uh, have to present uh, before the commission. And uh, the state commission then determines uh, whether the uh, application will be put forward to uh, the national commission. It all in all, uh, it was about a year, year and a half process. Why do you think it's important to specifically preserve a place? I think it a place is yeah, a physical representation of our history, and we have connection to place. They also provide an opportunity for us to um, tell a story. Um, I think places on their own, perhaps buildings, perhaps not so important as the the memories that they contain. And I think they present real opportunities for learning. They present opportunities for community connection. Yeah, it's the story really. It's the the piece of, of history that is associated with the building. It can be very powerful. And uh, you know, a lot of times our preservation efforts have focused on the big and the beautiful and the grand. And I think it is, uh, I think it's important to remember that history is is made by all of us Mm -hmm. and not every piece is spectacular from the outside or the inside. It's what, in this case in particular, it's what the people did with that space that really makes the difference. That really is is the whole, the goal for me personally, you know, is to just just keep learning and it, and um, I just really it, it felt like a real privilege to me to be trusted with the story uh, of this this home and this wonderful history and I was um, I was very pleased to to get the opportunity to tell it and I'm very pleased that it's got the recognition that it so so deserves and will be there now hopefully to tell its story for a long time to come. Robin Smith, Tulane University graduate student in historic preservation. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Bob. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. Thanks to our guests, the Times-Picayune, the Advocate's editorial director and columnist, Stephanie Grace, 
Executive Director of Bastion, Jackson Smith, and Tulane graduate student, Robin Smith. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our assistant producer, Aubrey Procell. Our engineer, Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at Rouse's.com with additional support from Southern Strategy Group.